Thanks for joining us for episode three of This Life's Work with Charles Ratliff and Friends. You'll notice we're recording this virtually to comply with social distancing guidelines. We recorded this episode on Zoom, so it's not our normal quality, but we do hope to record future episodes back at the beautiful Haxton Road Studios in downtown Bentonville. I'm Dana Schlegenhaft, and life has changed since our last podcast recording as the nation and the world have essentially shut down amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. But no matter where you are right now, and many of us are home, we're still creating and fulfilling our life's work. In fact, that work may be more essential now than ever. Thanks for listening and on to episode three. Joining me now is our podcast co-host. Hi, Charles. How are you? Charles Ratliff. Hey, good. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Dana. It's good to see you again. Good to visit again. It's been a long time. And uh, Hey, this morning I want to welcome uh, Nick Robbins. Nick is the, uh, besides being a friend of mine, he's the director, executive director of Returning Home. It's a nonprofit that helps people with criminal backgrounds overcome barriers to a successful return into our society and and nick let's hold the details for a, a little bit uh later on the podcast when i ask really some specifics about returning home and how we got started and all that but i think first dana wants to ask you a little about yourself and your background and since we're talking about life's work nick i want to go all the way back to the beginning um uh-huh. and and talk about your personal story which really inspired your life's work and I believe uh, when you and I spoke, that really, a lot of that started when you were 12, 13 years old. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. You're like a lot of preteens struggling to connect and find a place in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up, we bounced around a lot between uh, Iowa and Illinois, though, primarily. Um, I, I, I definitely didn't feel like uh, I knew my place in the world growing up. Um, so age around 12 years old, started using, um, drugs and alcohol, even though I was, uh, what most people call as a church kid. That's where we were every, uh, Sunday and Wednesday, the building was open. My family made sure all of us kids were there. Um, and I, and I think that that might've been one of the reasons that in my mind, uh, the church was a building. It was a place, uh, there was nothing more to, um, Christianity and, um, so I started seeking out other avenues um, to kind of feel fulfilled. And it didn't take long before um, my uh, poor behavior basically pushed everyone in a way that was, that was being a positive influence in my life. And so I was found myself um, 17 years old, living on my own, uh, ended up uh, committing uh, two armed robberies to uh, try to uh, pay my bills. Um, and that you know kind of got me thrust into uh the uh, judicial system at a very young age and and you know growing up in iowa you uh basically everyone was a wrestler and so i just remember every week uh as a kid i was trying to lose weight and uh try to make the next meet and then i get thrust into a jail and i'm the 135 pound kid uh and in, in, in with a bunch of uh, you know, big guys in, in an environment that I knew I needed to find a way to survive. And so then that was in my mind, my justification to not only continue uh, my criminal behavior, but, but to increase it, to be able to sustain myself um, during a, 
during a long incarceration. And so uh, it, uh, it, it led me to getting kicked out of my first prison I was in. And uh, the next prison I went to was in solitary for quite a while. And uh, then at about three years in, um, I had been under investigation without me knowing it. And uh, they kind of pulled me aside and, and gave me some new charges. Let me know that because of crimes I committed since I've been in prison, they were going to extend my stay. And uh, so, so I say that to, to give you an idea that at that moment was the first time I ever had to take responsibility for my actions. Because I told the, the administrative law judge sitting in front of me, I, I told her, I go, I, I shouldn't be doing more time. I shouldn't be here in the first place. And in my mind, I always thought it was everyone else's fault. It was never my fault. And I was always justified in my actions. And, and she let me know. She goes, Mr. Robbins, uh, we build prisons for people like you. And it kind of just, it really shattered my world of view of myself. Um, and so I had to take a step back. And I'm the only person in the room, so there's no one to blame. It wasn't the coach's fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't my boss's fault. It was my fault. And so I knew I needed to change. Um, I didn't know what that looked like, uh, but, it, but it did lead me to make a decision to go to a faith-based program. Uh, I made it for all the wrong reasons. Um, I did it to get out of the prison I was currently in, in my mind, uh, just like I did when I was in school. I went to four different high schools over a year and a half. So I would, I would go there thinking I just need a new opportunity, screw it up, and then I'd run. And so I was doing the same thing in the prison system. I was running. Every time I messed something up, I'd get myself sent to another prison, um, but this time was, was definitely different. Uh, I, I found myself um, going to the faith-based program for all the wrong reasons, but, but the Lord had a, had a different plan and, and kind of captured me at a, a unique moment of humility, which was very rare for me at the time. And, uh, and there, was one, there was a couple different situations in particular because, again, I was somebody that grew up in the church, so I thought I knew all the stories because I, I think it was literally in every play from about every Bible story. And, and so I thought I had this thing figured out and it became pretty clear that, that I, I didn't even scratch the surface. And uh, while I was there, there was all these volunteers coming in every single night. They come into this prison to, to teach us these classes. And it just, to me, it made no sense because this is the place that all of us wanted to get out of. But every, every week they keep coming back. And finally, I, I got the courage up to ask one of the uh, volunteers. There were a couple from Pella, Iowa, um, Simon and Corrine. And I just asked them, I go, what are you doing here? Why do you keep coming back? And they say, well, it's, Nick, it's because we love you. And I was like, I, I hadn't had an opportunity to earn your love. So I, I want to know, why did you really come in here? Before you ever met me, you came in here. And she just said, she goes, Christ died on the cross for my sins. Before I was ever born, before he ever met me, and all he knew was the worst thing that I would ever do, and he knew he needed to sacrifice himself for my sins because he loved me. And for the first time, I saw Christ's love in action. Not that it wasn't around me my entire life, but, but it was so in my face in that moment of that couple, sacrificial, and they're in their 70s, walking into a prison, and it made sense. And that, among a number of things in the prison system, it just captured my heart and, and kind of put a passion uh, in me to then one day be that for other people, represent Christ by my love, only knowing the worst thing I've ever done. And so that's kind of where we are today. 
Nick, that's uh, your story uh, just still amazes me. I don't know how many times, you know, I've known you for, <clears throat> I've lost track now, 10 or 12 years. Yeah. And your story still gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I still get goosebumps thinking about a world that, which many of us don't know anything about. And we appreciate you taking the time to come share with us the perspective of people that are as much different than ours. So I thank you for that. And I want to share a bit, uh, Dana, of, of how I met Nick. And uh, and it's a, it's a personal testimony also. So uh, I may get a little emotional about it because uh, 11 or 12 years ago, uh, I was experiencing uh, what I thought at the time was just about every personal challenge a person could go through. Uh, it was during the financial collapse. Uh, Y'all remember that back in 08, 09. Uh, so I had, I had money at stake. I had uh, the country was having significant issues. Not quite like what we're going through now with COVID-19, but financially we were. Uh, for those of us, I was retired. For those of us with IRA, uh, IRAs, 401ks, those dropped 35%. So financially, it was a real challenge. Um, didn't know how long it'd take to come back from from that, if it ever would do. Uh, in the middle of all that, my dad died. Then my mom had a debilitating stroke. And a lot of the pressure from that caused uh, problems at home with my wife. <laughs> we had challenges. Then our kids were having personal challenges of their own. And, you know, when you have kids, you live their life too. It's, you don't separate too far from them. So if they have problems, you have problems. So, and I've told people now that I'm, I'm uh, getting, uh, now that I'm 67 and I lived a few years, if you live long enough, you'll probably go through some of these times. And maybe more than once, hopefully not. But <clears throat> I tell, said all that to say this. So I thought through all that process, there's nothing else that could go wrong right now. <laughs> and I, I go to a routine optometrist visit. She looks in my eyes and she swings around in her chair and says, you need to see your primary care physician ASAP. Well, needless to say, that got my attention. I thought I, thought I had all the problems. <laughs> so, I mean, I called my doctor and went down there almost immediately, saw him. He goes, oh, my you need to go see a cardiologist. I went to see a cardiologist. He sent me to an ophthalmologist, a specialist in this particular eye stuff. And this ophthalmologist, I'll never forget, he, you know, gets you up, does the eye exam. Uh, then he leans back and said, well, I've seen 12 people with this and eight of them died. And I, my first thought is funny what you think when you get those moments where you're, I mean, your world just crashed. And my first thought was, you must have flunked the class on bedside manner because that was a terrible way to tell me that. So uh, I said that to say this, uh, I'm still here. So obviously they were wrong or I was one of the ones that, you know, for whatever reason, and I could name a few, uh, but primarily one, he's way up above me. I'm still here. So I realized you know, I'm here for a purpose there's something going on here. And I made a lot of personal changes. Uh, uh, mostly I became more of a giver and less of a taker and took the focus off myself. It's kind of that point, like Nick was saying, Hey, people all around are having problems. Why am I think I'm special? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm having problems too. 
So, uh, you know, I just want to mention, I learned a couple of really specific things like Nick mentioned that have stuck with me since then. Sometimes we don't realize God's all we need until God's all we have. Once, once we realize that, we take a different perspective. And the other thing, uh, remembrance that stuck with me is, is uh, and I've, I've stayed, stuck with it ever since then, if we'd use God as a first resort, we wouldn't have to use him as a last resort. So I start with him every morning. So I said all that to say this. At the time, I made just tremendous number of changes, started hanging around with different people. Nick can relate to this. Um, uh, changed habits. I mean, I did an evaluation of my life. And in that process, these guys kept saying, hey, I want you to come meet this, this young guy that does work in prison ministry. And the whole time I'm thinking, I don't want to go into a prison. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, but... But I learned through the process to be obedient. Go do what you're being called to do. Don't be so selfish about this. You know, go find out what you're being asked to do. So I remember, Nick, I still remember sitting down in the restaurant and you telling your story with some of similar, I'm getting goosebumps again. Every time you tell that story, I get the goosebumps. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting the whole time Nick's talking, thinking, Golly, I've been whining about my problems and these there's people all over. Everybody has problems. And listen to this, what this guy's saying. So um Nick and I, he talked me into going with him down to I don't know if you remember this, Nick, down to the Riceville prison of Little Rock. I think there were just twelve of us the first time. Yeah. You and eleven of us that you'd converted like me to go in with you. <laughs> and that was probably ten years ago, maybe. Yeah, probably. So would you mind taking the story from there of, you know, how you and I started down to Little Rock and what you were doing, how you wound up with uh, returning home? Yeah, so kind of when I got out, I started with uh, Prison Fellowship. was one of the organizations. It was actually my second job. My first job was working at a, a youth facility uh, for troubled teens. And so... I uh, then went to Prison Fellowship and so worked with them for a few years. And, and we came into the state of Arkansas with a program that was the one I actually went through while I was in prison. It was called the IFI program then. And then probably about three years in, Prison Fellowship um, had some financial issues, so they backed out. And so then um, the boss at the time, um, Scott uh, McLean, he then took um, – our organization and made pathway to freedom. So we kept doing what we were doing in Wrightsville. And so I was working there and uh, what's interesting is it, it, it was an absolute blessing to be able to be a part of the program that helped change my life. And um, we've just seen so many amazing stories. One of the, probably the neatest one, and I think it was on the trip that you were on, was uh, we, were, we were going in and we were talking about, um, I'm trying to remember the characteristics we were talking about, but it was like sacrifice, um, sacrificial love, something like that. And uh, at one point, I was just standing on the side of the wall, and so we've got 200 guys in a room. 200, all, I'm sorry, Nick, 212. 212, <laughs> I, right, right. I, I, took a, I took a head count because it was 212 yeah. to 12. And yeah. I'm thinking, I cannot get over the barbed wire if I can get out of this place. Yeah. This absolutely. is not this could turn bad in a hurry. Yeah. And so when when we walk into this this room with, with my eleven volunteers and I said, scatter out. These two hundred guys are about to sit in here. We don't want you <laughs> all sitting together. 
And so it was just random. The 11 volunteers, Charles and the rest, just all sat in different seats. And then immediately this flood of 200 guys in prison pour into this room and sit down just wherever. And we're talking about, you know, we start, we start with some praise and worship and it's just, you know, really a special time. And then all of a sudden one of the volunteers comes up to me and he's crying. I'm like, Oh, what they say, what they do? Like, like what <laughs> happened? What did I just miss? And, and at that time it was kind of during, during an area where we would break and we go into lead some small groups. And, and so we are now standing in this little hallway waiting for the rest of the guys to get out of the room. And he goes, I just met the father of my children. I'm like, wait, how is that possible? Please explain that to me. And he goes, me and my wife adopted these two African-American girls. And I've heard of their parents, but I never met them. Their father just sat in front of me, turned around and introduced himself. And I was like floored. I was like, hey, man, I know Vernon. So I know what he's in for. I know he's getting ready to get out. Good guy. If you want to share this with them, that's fine. If not, I won't say anything. And Clay just looks at me. He goes, there's got to be a reason why this guy sits, sat in front of me. And so he just walked up to Vernon and shared. He's like, I want you to know that me, my wife, and your daughters have been praying for you every single day. And Vernon just looked at him and starts crying. He was like, you know where my kids are. He goes, yeah, they're at, they're at home. And just started sharing that not only did, did Clay take care of his children, but Clay made it a part of his daily routine that they prayed for these children's mom and dad and that the Lord would come into their life. And Clay had an opportunity to give that man a big old hug and just say, hey, not only do I, am I a part of your daughter's life, I want to be a part of your life, and I want you to be a part of our life as a family when you get out. And so and we're just floored. We're like, you gotta be kidding me. We're just coming in here, sing some songs. I'm telling, trait. I'm telling you, Nick, I was, at the time we didn't, of course the accommodations aren't much there for guests. So we're standing yeah, in this little, or yeah. big, big broom closet. And he's, he's telling you, he's telling this story. And I think we all cried. I yeah. mean, you know, a bunch of men stand around crying in a prison probably. <laughs> But it, I mean, it's a goosebump. Uh, it's a goosebump moment, and I've been down there now. At, I don't know many times uh, that, uh, and you've got an endless number of stories and got to know a lot of these. This is a men's prison, by the way, down there. I want to ask you this real quick: for statistically, of the incarcerated people in Arkansas, what percent are male? So. It would probably be about 95%, okay. uh, maybe a little more than that. So out of the 17,000 that are in prison, there's probably about 800 women. So yeah, that, that figures out. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, yeah, upper 90% men. Yeah. So how did you, how did you, wind, how'd you go from pathway to freedom to returning home? Yeah, yeah, so it, it was interesting. Uh, there was a number of things that kind of presented itself. Um, and I am, so being somebody that went to prison for armed robbery, finances is terrifying and change is, makes me uncomfortable. And I'm just going, I, I, I've got a job here. I just need to stay the course. I, I know this work. I understand it. Um, and people kept telling me like, hey, 
you need to you need to further your education in this work like like we see more for you than what you're doing today and one of the opportunities was um, uh, the Chuck Colson scholarship out of Wheaton College um, and I got presented two different times hey I bet you if you applied for the Chuck Colson scholarship they would pay for your schooling and you can go and you can learn more about this work and how to run a nonprofit and at my at the time I'm thinking do I want to do those things <laughs> Do I want to go back to school? Because last time school did not go well for me. Uh, but finally, I, I just kind of bit bit the bullet, um, and I remember I, I I just filled out the paperwork. We had to write some essays and stuff and send them in, and I, I just I honestly didn't want to do it. And the lady uh, Karen Swanson, she called me, and she's the executive director of um, over the Institute for Prison Ministry at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton College, and she just said, you know, Mr. Robbins. I'm gonna be honest with you. I read all the, the stuff you wrote. It's not at the level that 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 we're needing. They're talking about we need like this Turabian style writing and all this stuff. I'm like, um, I got a prison GED. I don't even know what you're talking about. And, and she's like, Yeah, I I really don't think you'd be able to keep up with this coursework. And so I don't do well with challenges. So I go, Oh no, I'm going to now do it. <laughs> now I'm all in. <laughs> Whatever I need to do to complete this is to show you that I can do it. I'm gonna do it. And and so I for the next year and a half worked full time uh, did some schooling and it and it is another one of those moments that kind of planted the seed like hey maybe there's something more and at that time um, we had been going in with the group of men from Northwest Arkansas into the prison in Wrightsville you know it's a at least a three hour drive and some of the guys Charles and some of the other guys just said what would it look like if we wanted to do it locally and so then it again kind of spurred on that well what if I started something here in Northwest Arkansas. And to, to understand, like, I live in Branson, Missouri for the last 12 years. So it isn't like, hey, I'm going to do it in my hometown. Again, I, I picked a location that, you know, what I felt like the Lord was kind of calling me to. And when we started the nonprofit in 2014, I, again, I drug my feet. I'm just like, I don't think I want to take that leap of faith because I don't think I'm ready to do that. Well, and Nick, uh, Nick, there were a lot of there were a lot of variables there because we I think what start us initially if you recall we went down to the springdale work release center mm -hmm. yeah and they were getting ready to expand that and then there were things going on with pathway to freedom and their funding it was like a path was being laid out for us but it wasn't yeah. really wasn't really clear yet right yeah because we, we were in the time that <clears throat> with pathway to freedom i i remember i i that week i didn't even get a paycheck it's like yeah things are not going well we're out fundraising we're struggling and so I'm stressed out and, you know, I'm sitting down with my wife and we're just talking about it. I go, I think the Lord's calling me to this. I have uncertainty now, but I think that if we make this leap of faith, it's going to be even more unsecurity. And, and, and she just said, it, it, I'm going to trust you. If the Lord's saying we need to do it, it's only going to get worse if we don't. I was like, oh, I don't want it to get worse. <laughs> so we just, you know, I sat down with my wife and said, okay. We pray about it. I'm going to sleep on it. Woke up the next day. I go, the Lord's laid it out that I'm supposed to give six months worth of tithe to this returning home. I'm supposed to come on full time for the first month, taking no salary because I need to give to be able to go in front of and fundraise. You got to be able to say, Hey, I've given my time, talents and resources as well. Would you be willing to come alongside me and, and make that same sacrifice to change people's lives? And there were so many guys like Charles and others that were saying, I'm willing to come alongside you and we're willing to do this together. 
And so, so, so leap of faith. So, so Nick, now you have a, uh, it is amazing what you've done there. How long has that been? How long? So we, we ended up probably the, the first biggest thing we did was we, we opened the returning home center. You actually got, you actually got a facility, got a facility and that was three years ago. And the, the, the idea was because I went through prison fellowship doing the work nationally and we ran out of funding and I lost my job. And then I did it statewide with Pathway Freedom, did it, and, and, and they were struggling financially. I go, I know for a fact finances are going to be a big, big issue. And uh, so how do I do it in a way that I'm, uh, I'm a good steward of the resources that are given? And so I decided as partnerships with organizations. So we actually have 15 partner organizations at the Returning Home Center that provide weekly services. And there's actually four other organizations that, that work in this building you know, all their staff work here. So we got a total of 20 staff members that work in this building and I only pay three of them. So um, it was this collaborative um, model of a one-stop shop. So we have the residential side that houses 67 men paroled directly out of prison. We got the career side that Goodwill um, provides um, jobs for these um, men and women coming out. We've got a, um, a parole officer. The office is here five days a week. That's over everybody that's in the building. Uh, we have um, TCIY's behavior health organization that does all of our mental health therapy and, and med management and things like that. Um, and so we're able to keep everybody within their strengths. And so that, that means each organization only covers basically their percentage, their portion of the cost to run. It's over a million dollars a year to, to run what we're doing at the Returning Home Center. But each organization is just taking a small piece of that and taking ownership of that. And what, what it did is it, it's created community. We have so many, uh, so many folks coming in. We've got uh, people from the community coming in for services. We actually serve more people that are living in Northwest Arkansas that have already gotten out that just need some help, that need some food, some clothes, need some counseling, need some help getting jobs. We're, we're averaging about 60 new clients a month. So we're, we're, we're definitely busy. Nick, Charles and I just, some background, Charles brought me up and yeah. in Springdale and I got to, to tour the returning home center. Um, talk about the process. You kind of showed us the process of someone getting out of prison, literally getting themselves to Springdale yeah. to your center and talk about how that works for them. And, and I did want to paint more of a picture of um, when you're talking about all these organizations, when we toured, you literally would go down a hallway and Nick, you would point, here's where food is, here's where clothes are, here's where down here where the mental health services are. So it's all just confined in this area. So when someone gets out of prison and they show up at your door, talk through that process with us. Yeah, so the, the reason we picked, the people we picked is because we knew, um, we knew some statistics about those that we served. So there's, there's, there's a few telling ones. The first one is 79% um, of people that are incarcerated today have been abused um, <clears throat> verbally or physically between the ages of 1 and 12. So high, high level of trauma. So when, when you're dealing with a high level of trauma, that means you need to create a culture that um, is set not through punishment, razor wire, through um, enforcement, but instead of uh, we're going to walk down that same road with you. We're going to come alongside you. We're going to love you right where you're at. And then 52% uh, of them have um, been diagnosed with a severe mental illness. 
And so knowing that, that there's that mental health component that for the most part is the reason they were incarcerated is we just don't know what to do when someone's not taking their medication, they're falling apart and they're reacting and they're acting poorly and they get themselves in trouble. And, and so we brought in that mental health services. And then the third one is that um, the uh, men and women that are incarcerated, 80% of them struggle with substance abuse. So we knew we needed caseworkers. We knew we needed, we got Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, uh, Reformers Anonymous, all in, in one building providing services focusing on this mental um, substance abuse side of things. So, so knowing that we, we, we put, put everyone together so that somebody in the prison system is going, I need to get out. I have nowhere to go. And they get accepted. They get on a bus and they're on this bus and most likely they're wearing a pair of slippers, uh, shower shoes is what we call them in prison. <clears throat> they're wearing one outfit and that's all they got. So you got one outfit that's not yours because you're wearing a jumpsuit when you're in prison. So there's just a pile of clothes and you grab some clothes that try to fit you and, and, and you just walk out the door because you're so excited to get out. So you, you show up and when you walk into the door, uh, the first thing we're giving them is a um, basically a welcome pack. It's got socks, underwear, all their hygiene products they need. We hand them their bedding. We take them to the clothing closet. Hey, grab some clothes, get some shoes. Um, we usually show them where the room is. Hey, this is where your bed is. Put your stuff down. Let's go grab you some, something to eat. Um, this individual doesn't have, most of them uh, don't know where they're at. Uh, over 60% of them are released without identification. So there's no way to get them a job. There's no way to, like if they were paroled out to an, if they had an apartment, they couldn't even turn the water on. Um, so then immediately we get the casework started. What are the things that you need to get accomplished? Do you have pending warrants, which is very, very, very regularly you get out and somebody's a court is wanting to see you. So how do we navigate that? How do we get you your, um, your medication? Because most of them are being released and they're only being released with random amounts of medication. Everyone's different. Some people come out with three days. Some people come out with no medication. So how do we keep you regulated and keep you moving in the right direction? Okay, so now we need Get with the mental health group now we need to start advocating at the pharmacy hey is there something that we can do at the community clinic um so there's a lot and then um when they get to get here then they also get thrust into classes so we do 12 hours of classes a week and so that's um different classes healthy relationships financial classes um let's see what else we do substance abuse recovery classes we do victims impact so so they're going through a, a bunch of different things and one of the first classes they go through, and this is, so returning home is the umbrella organization. We don't provide the direct services. We support the service providers. But this is the one class that I teach and it's orientation and I stand in front of them and I tell them, I go, I want, to, I want you to understand why I'm here. I'm here because all I knew was the worst thing you've ever done. And I accepted you and I love you. And there's nothing that you can do to take that from me. There's and, and at this moment, I know you need help. I know you're struggling with your addiction. I know you're struggling to read and write. I know you're struggling with your trauma. I know all those things are an issue. But just know that I love you right where you're at. And we're going to walk alongside each other. And hopefully, if you truly want it, we're going to break down those barriers to make you successful so that you never go back to prison. So that your children don't have to grow up with the mindset that prison is what's expected of me. 
So we're going to break the cycle of incarceration for your entire family, and we're going to start here today doing that. And, and so you just see a different mindset on these individuals because these individuals, 24 hours earlier, were behind razor wire, multiple layers of it, were behind multiple locked doors, had security cameras, had armed you know, security officers to, to make sure they did what they wanted them to do. And so now, how do I get them to do what I want them to do? I just express my love for them and express that we have services and people that are going to come alongside them 24-7. There is not a time in this building that there is not staff here seven days a week. And, hey, uh, Nick. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. And I, we're running a little long on time, but that, yeah. you're such an interesting story. But I wanted to, I, I wanted to ask you one more question before Dana wraps us up. But I wanted to make a statement first. <clears throat> I'll tell you what, I'm really proud to tell people you're my friend. Oh, thank you, and, uh, Yeah, and I really appreciate what you're doing. And it is amazing how many lives you positively impact. And you don't really get much recognition for it. Uh, and I thank you for that. And would you tell us how can we help you and uh, the guys at Returning Home? Absolutely. Appreciate you, Charles. You, you, you've been there ever since the beginning and you believed in me more than I believe in myself often. So thank you so much for your encouragement and your guidance over the years. And uh, so the best way to help is connect on our website, um, returninghomenwa.com. Uh, going on there, you can find out some needs um, financially. We're, we're a nonprofit, so we raise our own support. Uh, so that's always a blessing. Uh, we're always looking for folks coming in to speak to encourage our guys. Um, and, and it could be as simple as, you know, bringing a bunch of bottles of shampoo. I, I tell you what, we go through so much hygiene in this building. But uh, what, what the blessing is, if somebody, somebody gets out of uh, jail tomorrow and they come into our building because they're coming in for some hygiene, well, we have the opportunity to share the gospel without words that day by just loving on them right where they're at. And they're going to walk out with a whole lot more than a bottle of shampoo. But being able to provide those things is really that open door to give us the opportunity to love on them um, like Christ loved on all of us. So thank you all so much for your time. I appreciate being on the podcast. Thanks again to Nick Robbins, Executive Director of Returning Home. Now, you may want to learn more about his organization, and you can head to returninghomenwa.com to find out more. Of course, Charles and I love to hear from you too. You can drop us a note at theratliffgroup.com. Just look for the contact form. Stay safe during these uncertain times, and we appreciate you listening.